Matthew 27, 1 through 31. When Jesus came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then, the, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is this to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was, then was fulfilled what had been spoken to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the, the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even, a, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who was called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The word of the Lord. Hello. How you doing? It's good to see you all. Oh, look, there's people up there too. Wow, hey, how you doing up there? How is Ragbri, Jarrett? Good? Okay, good. I'd, I'd thought about doing Rag Bride, but then I realized I was older than I was the last two times I did it and decided probably didn't want to do that. Uh, so greetings to you. Uh, greetings from the city on the hill. Uh, you know the city that I'm talking about, the city where uh, we're concerned about important things like Hunter Biden's laptop. 
uh, stolen election results, uh, Hillary Clinton's emails, I think they're still looking for those, how to use the Department of Justice to persecute and prosecute your political enemies. Because this is really what the city on the hill is supposed to be like, right? The, the things that are, are happening there are kind of a testimony to the rest of the world, and the rest of the world looks at that city on a hill and says, we want to be just like that. We want to just run to that place and be like that. And that's, that's where we minister. That's where Faithful Presence is, is doing the ministry that we're doing. We focus um, primarily on, not really on the hill. There's about 16 ministries on the hill um, that are good, evangelical, Christ-centered uh, ministries. We focus on everybody off the hill, which are all the cabinet agencies, uh, think tanks, policy centers, um, the people who are, who are kind of doing the work that the Hill is creating the work to be done. Uh, they're funding it, and so the Department of Education and HUD and the Department of Labor and the Department of Agriculture and the FDA, all of these people are working to implement the kind of things that are being directed by the Hill, and that's really where we minister. But it is, um, I would say this, it's less chaotic than Twitter and YouTube make you think it is, and it's perhaps more desperate than the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post would have you believe. It's 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 a difficult it's a difficult environment to do ministry. Uh, and so, with that said, um, let me uh, pray to the Lord as I as I pick up my notes. <clears throat> Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven. Ah, I thank you for the opportunity to be here in this time, in this place with these people. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for their faithfulness to the gospel. Father, for 15 years, you have been working in this community through, even through the infancy of one ancient hope in the middle of a natural disaster and an economic decline. Father, somehow you... We're pleased to work through various servants to place a church in this community that would offer foretastes of the gospel to those who come in contact with its members. And so, Father, for that, I am unbelievably thankful. And I pray that you would use this message to encourage them to continue to do that very same thing. In Christ's name. Amen. So at Faithful Presence, what we do is we, if somebody says, oh, well, what do you do? I typically give them the longer answer, which is that we equip servants and leaders working in Washington to flourish as they participate in Christ's mission of making all things new through providing intentional, spiritual, emotional relational, vocational, ideological, cultural, and evangelical discipleship, and in supporting the local church in equipping their members for Christ-centered participation in the public square. And invariably, people respond to that by saying, that's a lot of words, man. Can you shorten that into something else? And I say, sure. It's whole life discipleship for the whole of life in the whole of the public square. And then they say, invariably, well, what does that mean? 
And I say, I literally just explained that, but you asked me to give you a one sentence, and so I could just repeat the thing that I just said. But this is, this is kind of, let me unpack this for you. So we believe that being a fully formed disciple is not just a critical component, but it's essential. It's essential for participation in the public square. That just having knowledge, having information about Jesus is not sufficient for participation, right? Maybe you have turned on the news and seen people that you think, man, that person's emotional intelligence is very low, but they do seem to know a lot of things. And there they are in Washington. Or maybe there's people who are relationally unhealthy. Or maybe there's people who just don't understand the way culture operates. And so when Christians come to Washington, one of the things that we typically experience is that they really understand the relationship between them and Jesus. But when it comes to like applying that and navigating that, what we discover is that there maybe are deficiencies relationally, emotionally, the way they see their work, the way they see culture. And so that's how we try to come alongside of them. Because what we want to do is to produce disciples who are able to have a faithful presence, who aren't just kind of given to rash reactions and stereotypical responses and straw man characterizations of arguments so that they can win them. Because in Washington, there are three, I would say there are three eschatologies that are very popular. I'm going to talk about two of them first, and I'm going to give you the last one at the end. So an eschatology, for those of you who are like, oh boy, what kind of word is he using there? An eschatology is simply this. It's an end game. It's how things end. It's like Marvel movie, right? You've all seen Marvel Avengers Endgame, right? Where Thanos has an end game. He wants to acquire all the infinity stones so that he can snap his fingers and wipe out half the population of the universe, which he does. And then the Marvel characters are like, oh, we have to go back and we have to undo this. Right, because that's his end game, is complete power, snapping his fingers, and everybody dies. That's an end game. It's an eschatology. There's two very popular ones in Washington, D.C. They change their names about every 10 years, but right now, these two eschatologies go by the following names. Make America Great Again, okay? And here's how you know it's an eschatology, because it's making a statement about the way things are and proposing a way that things should be in the future. And so you have to imagine to yourself, well, what do they want? Well, what they want is a leader who can lead people to make America great again, and that will look a particular way, right? There will be a particular end game that that looks like in the end. And this leader is the guy who's going to take you there. And what would be really great is if he was endowed with the power to just snap his fingers because he has the infinity glove and can just make it happen. The other one is called Build Back Better. And again, it's an eschatology because it's making a statement about the way things are and a path forward to some other place that looks different. And its end game looks different than the other one. And again, you need a leader. You need somebody to take the people there. And it would be great if that person had the ability to snap their fingers and just make it happen. But... As you are probably aware, there are no infinity stones available in Washington, D.C. And so there is no snapping of the fingers and making things happen. 
There's the politics of governing. There's the using of people to get what you need. There's manipulation, there's envy, there's greed, there's factions, there's what it says in Galatians. Now the works of the flesh are evident. There's the ones we like to talk about, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. But then he says, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Sound like I'm describing a city on the hill? There it is, right in scripture. Right after the things that we like to talk about. Because they usually don't involve us. We can usually point to other people and say, oh, they're doing those things. But it's the rest of the list that gets us in trouble. And it's the rest of the list that gets people in Washington in trouble. Right? Because they, they feel like, I have to make one of these two things happen, and whatever I need to do to get us there is what I'm going to do. Because I don't have infinity stones. And so what you end up with is people using each other and people even willing to betray each other to get ahead. And this is the passage we have in front of us today. We have a number of actors in this passage. We're going to look at Judas, the chief priests, Pilate, the crowd, and we have Jesus. And we have this group of actors, this group of characters on what we'll just call the political stage at a very political moment, and everybody almost everybody, is maneuvering for political gain in some way. They're using each other. They're trying to figure out, how do I navigate this so that it's best for me? And we'll start with Judas. It says this. It says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They want Jesus to be dead. This is what Will said with the apple and the onion. Let me just say something about apples. If you take an apple and bread it and fry it, do you know what you get? A mushy apple. You know what you get if you, if you bread an onion and fry it? A yummy onion ring or blooming onion. So I'm just saying onions are good. Um, just let's, let's, let's just put onions out there. I want to do a little redemption of the onion. Uh, and they bound him and led him away, and that's not of my notes, and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. And they said to him, what is that to us? See to it yourself. In throwing down the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. So what's Judas's role in this passage? We know that Judas was the betrayer. We know that he set out after the Last Supper to go to the, to the religious leaders. He got money and he decided, you know, I'm going to betray Jesus. Why? After he'd seen all the things, just try to imagine the things that Judas has seen. He has seen Lazarus risen from the dead. He has said Jesus just has spoken words of healing and people have been healed. He has been on a boat in the middle of a storm and Jesus woke up and done. 
No, just calmed the waters. He has been in places where there has been no bread and suddenly 5,000. And then in case you missed it, 4,000 people are fed. Over and over again, Judas has seen this. So why in the world would you betray that guy for 30 pieces of silver? Why? Because Judas isn't getting what he wants. That's what I think. I think Judas had in mind that this end game ends somewhere that's good for me. Like, Jesus, maybe Jesus is going to just take over everything and I'm going to get to be one of the key leaders. And clearly, Jesus does not seem interested in this at all. In fact, he, if he's a Messiah, he seems like he's kind of sucking a lot at it. Every time he gets on a roll, he's like, oh, I need to go pray for like a month and a half. I'll be back later. Judas is like, man, come on, man. Like, we're just starting to get some momentum and you just keep, you're not doing the things you need to do if we're going to do the things we need to do. And so what happens? Judas says, you know what? If this movement isn't going to get me what I want, at least I should probably get some money. Maybe I'll just, I'll just go see if I can get some money out of this thing. Because it's clearly not going where I want. And so he gets the 30 pieces of silver. And then he realizes how bad the chief priests want Jesus out of the picture. Because he doesn't see his death coming. And he's racked with grief. But not repentance. That's key here. Is the word that's used here is with deep regret is not the word that you would use for repentance. So he's deeply regretful that this thing has happened. And he admits that he's sinned. He's guilty. But he's not repentant. He's just distraught. And so he goes to people who he thinks can help him. So he's disillusioned, he's frustrated, and he goes to the people who he thinks, maybe you can alleviate, you're the priest, maybe you can alleviate my pain. So two things we need to see about Judas. We're going to see these about each person. He's guilty, clearly, and yet he makes a declaration that this man is innocent. This is very important to what Matthew's doing. Judas says he is innocent. Next character. Um, oh, one really quick aside here. So if you look in your Bibles where it says, here is for fulfilled what the prophet Jeremiah said, you're going to see a little letter. And if you look at that letter, it says, oh, yes, go to Zechariah 11, verse 43. So you should go, okay, wait a second. Did, like, Matthew got confused, he somehow thought Jeremiah, but he was really thinking Zechariah, and so we'll just go ahead and correct it in the, in the notes in the Bible. And the answer is, no, he wasn't thinking about Zechariah, he was thinking about Jeremiah. Yes, Zechariah talks about a potter's field, yes, Zechariah talks about 30 pieces of silver, but both things can be true, right? 
Matthew can be thinking, because Matthew is thinking all about fulfillment over and over again in this passage. He's referencing passages of Old Testament saying, this is fulfilled, this is fulfilled, this is fulfilled, because his audience is Jewish. And so in his mind, I tend to think, you got two options. You can just write these down, because I'm not going to really exegetically explain them. But you've got Jeremiah 32, and you've got Jeremiah 19, which we read. Jeremiah 19, I think, is probably more in line because it's about judgment and it's about the renaming of a field. But what you don't want to get hung up on here is like, oh, well, their minutia seems, seems off. No, what both of these prophets are talking about is Israel and the shepherds are being judged because they're horrible at it. And they are being judged. And what the passages are saying is God is coming for the shepherds. And it is not going to be good. Which brings us to the shepherds, to the chief priests. Over and over again through this passage, you see the chief priests using Jesus for political gain. So Judas was using Jesus for financial gain. The chief priests are using him for political gain. They're working the crowds. They're working Pilate. They're making accusations about him in, in their own Jewish courts. Like, oh, he's leading people away according to Deuteronomy 13. So we really absolutely positively have to have him dead. And we're going to use the Romans to do it. Because we really shouldn't do it, but we'll use them. And so the, the chief priests, right, what is their job? Their job is to embody God on earth, to to mediate justice for the people, to mediate God's love to the people. And so Judas, racked with regret, with kind of horror of the thing that he has set in motion, goes to his priests and says, I've done a horrible thing. I've done a horrible thing. Thing, I have sinned. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. When somebody comes to you and you're a priest and the person in front of you says, I have sinned, you have a job to do. Your job is to, is to walk with that person through the steps of repentance. That's their job. That's what they exist for. To take that person. I mean, imagine if you went to Pastor Will and you said, Pastor Will, I've sinned, a great sin. And he said, what's that to me? What do I care? Go take care of it yourself. This is the unbelievable disregard for the people that the shepherds show in Zechariah and Jeremiah, which is why I think this is what Matthew's saying is like, listen, these shepherds are horrible. They're, they're beyond wicked what they are doing. They have painted Jesus as some kind of insurrectionist that's going to burn all of Rome to the ground, even though at no point has he has shown any sign of doing any of that. When he's asked questions about Roman currency, he's like, well, you know, give to Caesar whatever Caesar's, and you know. He seems, to, he seems to go out of his way to avoid Roman political confrontation. 
And yet the chief priests very much want the Roman system to put him to death. Here's how much disregard the chief priests have for the people. They whip the people up so that they will say, give us Barabbas, an insurrectionist, okay, a, as Mark tells us, a murderer in the insurrection. Give us that guy. That's the guy that we want because he can maybe lead us against the Romans, and that'll work out awesome for us. And the chief priests are like, yeah, 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 that, that's the guy. You, you want to let him go. You, you want to vote for him. Complete disregard for people, for the city, for the flourishing of the city, for their job. Using, so it, it's easy to look at the chief priests and think, oh, those are horrible people. Clearly, we would never do that. Clearly, religious institutions would never use the state to accomplish their goals. That would never happen. We would never see a time and a place where Christians would say, we should do whatever we need to do and use the mechanisms of government to get the things that we want, no matter what it costs us. Because we just want what we want. We would never do that. The church would never do that, would they? There's nothing here for us to see in the wickedness of the chief priests who were willing to use the state to accomplish their theological and social agenda. And it's so bad, even Pilate sees it. He says, this is envy. He says, it says, seeing that they have envy. One of the chief sins in Galatians. They're supposed to do justice. They do none. Let's look at Pilate. Oh, but before we do, let's, let's hear this. The chief priests also know that Jesus is innocent. And they say, because when, when Judas comes to them and he says, this man's innocent, they don't say, oh, no, he's not. What they say is, that's on you. They just avoid it. They know he's innocent, and this is important. And that takes us to Pilate. So there was, we have a lot of historical information about Pilate. He absolutely existed, and here's what we know about him from history. Uh, he was incompetent. He was reactionary. He loved killing people. Uh, he was really, really, really bad at his job. He was definitely on the Roman watch list. Like, as a governor, you're not doing good. If you keep doing bad things, then we're just going to have to remove you from power. That's Pilate, okay? So when you see Pilate, you need to think an incompetent, reactionary person who has no idea really what's going on, and just anytime he hears something, he just, you know, attacks a gnat with a hammer because that's the way that he needs to operate. And what's his job, though? Like the chief priests, his job is to administer justice. Not by Jewish law, like the chief priest, but by Roman law. And he knows what the right thing to do is. Because it says, I don't find anything wrong with this person. What do you want me to do? 
And so he sets up what he considers to be kind of a way out of the pokey. He's like, okay, I got, I got this. This, is, this, is, this has got bad written all over it. I see what they're trying to do. I see they're trying to game me. I got, I'm easy. I'm out of this thing. Hey, give me the worst guy you can possibly find because I'm getting out of this. This is too much trouble for me. They're like, oh, here's Barabbas. He's a horrible person. He likes to storm buildings, knock windows in, and, you know, take over the government. Uh, you know, bring him. He kills people, too, when he's doing it. Okay, hey, here's the deal, people. You can have this horribly rotten, dirty, scoundrel guy who kills people. Or you can have Jesus, who is the Christ. He says that twice. Twice, Matthew puts the phrase, Jesus, who is the Christ, into the mouth of Pilate. So here's what he's saying. Do you, do you want this horrible, evil, mur- murderer, wicked guy? Or do you want this person who you call the Christ? Thinking he's for sure getting out. But the chief priests, they're working the crowd because they know what the crowd wants. They know the crowd is swayable. And so Pilate gets totally played. But in this scene... He has all the power. He has the ability to do the right thing and overrule the chief priests right now. He can say, hey, guess what? I'm not giving, are you you insane? You think I'm going to release Barabbas? He wants me dead. There is no chance I'm releasing this guy. That would be beyond stupid. And this guy has done nothing wrong. This is some internal Jewish theological issue for you. You guys fix it yourself, but I'm done. Like, this, this is not happening. This is Roman law. If you, if you hurt him and he's innocent, I'm coming for you. He could have done that. He should have done that because his job was to administer justice. And instead, he saw Jesus as an opportunity for public gain. He used this moment of public opinion for public gain. And here's maybe the the way that we might apply this to ourselves. One of the questions that often gets asked to candidates is, how do you see your vote? Do you see your vote as like, you take public opinion, you're like, well, you know, everybody wants this, so I should probably vote for it because I'm an agent of the people. Or do you say, hey, look, I I don't want you to do this. I want you to do the right thing. Do the right thing. But but what if the candidate thinks it's the right thing? You know it's the right thing. See, this is the difficulty. We're asking candidates to do something, which is what Pilate's doing. He's trying to figure out some way to get out of this thing in the middle of public opinion and, and get out kind of unscathed. And we look at this and we say, well, Pilate's a horribly wicked person. We would never ask our politicians to do that. We would never elect a politician who did that because we don't want those things. We don't like pilots at all. And yet, Pilate washes his hands, which is a declaration of, I am innocent of this man's blood. This is important because Matthew has now shown that Judas has said Jesus is innocent. The chief priests have made it clear that Jesus is innocent. Now you have the Roman governor making it clear that he thinks that Jesus is innocent. 
And then you come to the crowd. That's us. We're the crowd. And what happens to the crowd? Because the crowd is not grounded, not just spiritually, but emotionally, relationally, ideologically, culturally, they are ripe for the picking. And that's exactly what happens. The chief priests whip them up. They whip them up into a frenzy saying, listen, we need to have this guy killed. But that's not their message. They don't go to the people saying, hey, um, will you please kill Jesus for us because we don't like him. He's kind of threatening our way of life and we're a little nervous about our relationship with the Romans. So we really need Jesus dead. Kill Jesus, please, for us so that we can, you know, manage everything politically. No, no, that would be an honest answer. But they're not going to say that. No, they're going to say what the people want to hear. And what the people want to hear is this is your opportunity to make Israel great again. Barabbas is your guy. Jesus sucks at being a Messiah. But Barabbas has a track record of killing people. And he'll do what it takes to do it for you. And so the people are like, yes, we've got to have this. We've got to, yes, give us Barabbas. Because the people aren't on the, on the priest's side. They just want what they want. And they don't see Jesus as giving it to them. And their whole maneuvering is based on, I am sick and tired of the government doing what the government's doing, and I am done. It is time to take action. And so they're easily played. And yet, in verse 23... Pilate says to them, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And Pilate said, why, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Again, they don't have any charge to bring against Jesus. The people have now said, Jesus is innocent. So you have Judas betraying Jesus for financial gain. You have the chief priest betraying Jesus for political gain. You have Pilate betraying Jesus for public gain. You have the crowd betraying Jesus for revolutionary gain. But each of them are saying he is innocent. And at the end, the people get so whipped up into a frenzy that they utter this. His blood be on us and our children. They just want to see Jesus dead. His blood be on us and our children. They're declaring their need for the gospel. And here's why all of these declarations of innocence are important. Because Matthew is all about fulfillment. And the way that sins are atoned for in the Old Testament is through a spotless lamb. And so having each of these people say, he is innocent, he is innocent, he is innocent, he is innocent. We are guilty, we are guilty, we are guilty. And the response, both of Pilate, Pilate washes his hands and you know what he says? It's not an accident. 
see to it yourselves. It's the same thing the priests said to Judas. See to it yourselves. Make it right yourselves. I can't can't make this right. You're going to have to make this right yourself. And here's, here's the importance of the gospel. You can't. You can't make it right yourself. You can't do it. You need a spotless lamb of God to make it right. And so Jesus, who is literally betrayed by everybody, including, let's not forget, Peter, James, and John have already walked this path embarrassingly badly and also abandoned Jesus and asked him for power and to do things. Jesus is all alone at the end, literally. And yet, here's what happens. You see, it's easy for us to look at politicians and blame them for what they do wrong because we see it on TV. But why are they doing those things? Because we want it. Because we want our politicians to give us gain at whatever it costs. And the reason that we get so amped up with our politicians is because We are not confident in Christ's promises to see us through anything. And that's not to say that politics isn't important. Don't hear me saying that. I have a whole ministry built on supporting people in in politics. But when Christians become so fearful and envious and anxious about the world, that they think, I need to turn to politicians to fix all this for me. Then I'll feel safe. Then I'll feel better. Then cities get burned to the ground. Capitals get stormed. People die. And as Christians, our job is not to trust in politicians but to trust in somebody who knew they were being used, knew they were being betrayed, and was willing to endure humiliation, pain, rejection, false accusation, false condemnation, torture, and death that he could have stopped at any moment but because he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he allowed all of this to unfold because he was not in it for gain for himself. He was in it for our gain. And here sets up the picture of what is our call as Christians. Maybe instead of seeking our own gain, we say, You know what? I'm willing to suffer humiliation, rejection, pain, and suffering for the gain of others. To bring about their flourishing instead of just focusing on mine. I'm willing to just trust in Christ instead of trusting in politicians. So I'm going to close by commending you. 
okay? Um, here, here's basically, here, here's really what, one, what faithful presence is. It's one ancient hope in Washington. That's, I, I'm not a very ingenious person. I, I went to Washington, D.C. I just turned one ancient hope into a ministry to people in government. That's all I did. You all, this, this church, it's one of the greatest things I've ever participated in. Your love for each other, your love for this community, your unwillingness to be grafted into some political debate of them versus us, of welcoming all different kinds of people with all different kinds of gifts, disagreeing with each other over various things, of showing this community what it's like, what the city on the hill is supposed to look like. Thank you. This, what you're doing, if you ever wonder, what does Michael do? I just do what you're doing. I try to teach people how to be a pink spoon, how to do what Baskin-Robbins knows, that if you give people just a teeny tiny taste of something that's very, very good, they will want more. Even though you could use the pink spoon to poke somebody's eye out. And as Christians, we have to decide. Are we going to just be the people who just go around poking people and then saying, why don't you want more ice cream? It's really, it's really good. You might, you might like it. I think you would like some ice cream. And people are like, you know, I'm going to pass. Thanks. <laughs> I've had the ice cream a few times. <laughs> it just it kind of hurts. No. We offer foretastes of the gospel. And we can do that not in anxiety because we know that Jesus Christ is the person who has our backs. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, all the women of this church. Thank you, all the men of this church who are doing the work of the gospel the way that Jesus intended so that people can know that they should trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving me an opportunity to ramble up here for a while about a passage that is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Father, I thank you that you do not forsake us even though we are absolutely forsakable, even though we still use each other, willing to betray each other, to gain the very things that you guarantee to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.